Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together as we study God's Word, and let us be challenged to apply His truth to our hearts so that we may serve Him faithfully. May God bless you. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. Begin verse 37 and follow through the end of the chapter. Allow me to read this passage of scripture. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Spirit says, from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit has, was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not coming out of Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they asked of them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law, is a curse. Nicodemus, who had come to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. As we open this passage of Scripture, I want to ask to, to skip a few verses that we're going to come back to for the main focus of our message. Let's go to verses 40 through 53, or 52, and we're going to look at these 13 verses. The main reason why I'm skipping over is because I want to focus on the main part of the message, and what I'm going to be focused on here is really kind of a repeat of what we dealt with last week. The confusion of what the people thought about Jesus. And so these 13 verses show that some of the people thought that Jesus was the prophet. Well, many of the Old Testament prophets did mighty works. They did miracles. They even brought people back to life. So some of the people were seeing the works of Jesus and said, maybe he is a prophet. But in this passage, it says he may be the prophet. Now, there's a little bit of miscommunication or mixed understanding as to what is meant there. Actually, there's two different ways that uh, it can be meant. One is that it, there will be a prophet that will come who will prepare the way for the Messiah. Many see John the Baptist as being that prophet. Uh, some even see that prophet or the prophet as referring to Jesus himself or the Messiah. When somebody asked Jesus personally, are you the prophet? He said, no, I am not. So that kind of clarifies that. But some saw that maybe he is the one who was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Then others said, no, maybe this is the Christ. Maybe he truly is the Messiah. So they were believing that what they were hearing, what they were seeing, truly was coming from the man of God, son of God. 
But then there were those who were confused about who Jesus was, where he came from. All they knew is that he had been ministering up in Galilee, that he had been raised in Nazareth, spent most of his life in that area. And they said, the Messiah cannot come out of Galilee, can it? None of the prophecies mentioned Galilee other than uh, Matthew kind of referring back that he will be called a Nazarene. But they were not understanding that Jesus was what they were actually saying. Isn't the Messiah supposed to come out of Bethlehem? Isn't he supposed to be of the house of David? Well, he was of Bethlehem. He was of the house of David. One thing about Jesus, he really didn't tout that much his, his background. He didn't say, I was born in Bethlehem through a miraculous birth. I was of the house of David. I have fulfilled the scriptures. No, others were the ones who saw that and recorded it. And then there were those who tried to seize him, as we saw last week, but were not able to touch him. If you remember, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus, to take him away. And they came back empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, where is he? Why isn't he with you? And they had a unique thing. They said, no man has spoken like him before. They heard the words of Christ, and they realized this is not just a regular man. And they feared to touch him. They feared to arrest him. So the Pharisees said, y'all haven't been brainwashed like everybody else, have you? Everybody else just is ignoring the law, and they're confused, and they're accursed. You're just like them. And then they used kind of a statement they thought that they knew the answer to. None of us, as the leaders of the Jews, have fallen for this lie, this, this, this false prophet, or whoever he might be. None of us have, have become believers in this man from Galilee, have we? No, not us. Then Nicodemus speaks up. Do y'all remember Nicodemus? He's the one that came to Jesus by night and asked him all sorts of questions. But Jesus kind of cut through the questions and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not of flesh, but of water. You must be born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus, whether he was a true believer at this time or was believing more and more that Jesus truly was, probably the Messiah, he spoke up and said, you know, you've already, you've already executed him. You've already brought charges. You've already had the, the court. Now you've already pretty much said we're ready to execute him. That's not our laws. We at least are supposed to have him before us, let him speak for his own self, hear what he is saying and what he's doing. And they said, you're not from Galilee too, are you? You're not on his side, are you? Well, that again just shows the confusion, the ways that people were thinking about Jesus. But now if you'll go back to verse 37, we're going to be spending the rest of our time on three verses, 37 through 39. Let me just read them again. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
let's look at the kind of situation and the invitation that's being given. If we focus too much on the other part of the passage, we kind of skip over this and don't put much precedent in it. But we got to understand something. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's not yet been crucified. He's not yet risen from the dead. He's not yet ascended back into heaven, which is his glorification. And the Holy Spirit has not yet come in the manner that it will after Jesus' ascension back into heaven. Here, Jesus is simply calling people to hearing the truth, the message of salvation. Now, the problem is we struggle with Jesus' role in his earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. Because Jesus has not yet died for their sins. He has not yet risen to give them eternal life. So how can you receive salvation before Jesus dies for your sins? Now, what Jesus is doing is he's drawing the people to himself, to the truth, to believe that he is who he says he is, that he has the power to and will forgive them of their sins and save them. It's only about six months into the future that Jesus will enter into Jerusalem again. He'll be riding the colt of a donkey, and he will be proclaiming himself as Messiah. And then he will be arrested, tortured, crucified, laid in a tomb. And thank goodness on that third day he will rise again. And those six months, I have a feeling that all that Jesus says and does is going to be implanted, etched into the minds of those who hear him. And then when he raises from the dead, and 40 days later when he ascends into heaven, people will remember these words. So here's the setting. Jesus is now attending the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, whichever way your, uh, your translation has it. Now, what is this feast? The feast actually commemorates God's provisions during the 40 years of wilderness wandering of the Israelite people. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not trust God enough to go in uh, when those 12 spies went in. They were too fearful. So they spent 40 years in an arid, dry land. God miraculously provided for them. Do you remember? He provided the manna every day. Six days. On the sixth day, he provided double amounts so that they would not have to go out and, and reap it on the Sabbath day. So he provided food for them each and every day of those 40 years. Well, what about water? Well, the water was not in, in great supply out in the wilderness. There may have been times where they came across some pools, and many times they were rancid, and they had to use a miracle of God to, to put a, a bow into it, and all of a sudden it becomes drinkable. But do you remember some of the times where water came flowing out of a rock? God miraculously provided water for 40 years for his people out in a dry, barren wilderness. And this is their time to celebrate that. Well, how did they celebrate it? Well, one of the things they did each and every of the seven days during that week of feasting, the, one of the priests would take a, a golden goblet, he would go outside of the city to the pool of Siloam and fill it with water. 
and he would proceed back in through the water gate, back into the city, back into the temple, and come to the altar, and he would march around the altar, and then he would pour out the water. Well, as he entered in, the people would actually be singing out scriptures. The first thing they would sing out would be Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore you will joyfully, joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And then as he was marching around with the goblet, they would sing what's called the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 through 118. If you read that passage of scripture, it's, it's a mighty praise of God and his provisions. Then the priest would pour out the water on the altar. Just as a sign of thanksgiving for the water that God had provided during that time of wilderness. Now what happened on the seventh day, the last, the great day of the feast? Well, when the priest came back in, instead of marching around the altar one time, he marched around it seven times. Can anybody imagine why he marched around it seven times? What happened when the Israelites marched around something seven times? Y'all remember Jericho and the walls came tumbling down? Well, that is symbolic that the seven times represents the time that their wilderness wandering was over and they had entered into the promised land. We don't know exactly when Jesus said these words, but look at verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, typically, a teacher, a rabbi, would sit as he was teaching, more than likely in the verses prior to this, Jesus had been sitting and people had joined around him listening to all that he had to say. But here Jesus stands up to be seen and to be better heard. And it says he cried out, basically with a loud voice, shouting to make sure that his voice could be heard. So what he's saying is not for just that crowd that had been gathered, but for anybody in the presence in that temple to hear him. Could it be that he was saying it right as the priest was pouring the water out on the altar? We don't know. The Bible does not say. I can kind of figure that that might have been that climactic moment that he did this. But what does he say? He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now you may read that and say, Well, what's the big deal? If anyone, stop right there. Jesus is given an invitation. People may not have understood it at that moment, but I believe it was going to be ringing true six months later as he died on the cross and as he raised from the dead. If anyone, who's excluded from that? Anybody? Was Jesus excluding any race or sex or economic uh, group of people? Was he saying, well, you're, you're, you're from a different race, you're from a different country, you're from a different socioeconomic class, you're a man, you're a woman, you got the wrong color skin. He didn't say any of that. He said, if anyone. And that's been the case ever since. The invitation is for all people, not for some select group of people. Well, what does he say next? If anyone is thirsty... Has anybody ever been thirsty before? We all have, haven't we? If anyone is thirsty, 
Well, the picture is that the priest is pouring out this water on the altar. It's not satisfying anybody's thirst, but it's representing that God took care of a thirsty nation for 40 years in the wilderness. So they were thirsty many times, but God always provided the means, the supply, the resource for their thirst to be quenched. So Jesus says, if anybody is thirsty, what do you think he was meaning? Is he asking anybody if they need a drink of water? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Do you? Let's put it into a spiritual perspective. If anyone is thirsty, do you know that you have a need, is what he's saying. Do you know that there's a need that needs to be met? See, our world, our nation, tries to be ignorant that there's a need. They're trying to say, we're not really thirsty. But they're craving answers. There's a true need in my heart and your heart. There's a true need in every person's heart and life. It's a need for salvation. We may have already received that. I believe that looking across this room, hopefully and prayerfully, every one of us has. But Jesus is not preaching to the choir. He's not preaching to the ones who have already received salvation. He's preaching to the lost. He's saying, if anyone is thirsty. See, you've got to first know that there is a need before you can realize that there's an answer to that need. Well, I've shared the Roman road of salvation many times, but it just falls right in place here. That's why when we present the gospel, we must first present that there is a need. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If Jesus is saying, if anyone is thirsty, he's also saying... All of us have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. What does it mean to come short of the glory of God? We have all sinned against God, disobeyed against His will for our lives. It's really that simple. You can go up to anybody and say, have you ever sinned? And if they're honest, they'll say, yeah. Well, who have you sinned against? I guess God. I've broken the laws. I've, I've done bad things. Yeah, we've all sinned. That's pretty universal. Uh, I shared with one man in Brazil, that pastor, he said, I've never sinned. We went through the Ten Commandments, he realized he had sinned. And he prayed a prayer, prayed to receive Christ by the end of the day. But the first thing we have to do is what Jesus is saying, convince people that there's a need, that they're thirsty. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Another part of that is found in the first part of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve eternal death, total eternal separation from God. So there's a need. If anyone is thirsty, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that because of your sins, you deserve eternal death? And we can go into specifics. That means burning in hell for eternity. Being tortured for eternity is what that means. Well, realizing one's thirst is for is realizing one's thirst 
what only Jesus can provide is the first step. It's an important step. Everybody needs to first realize that they're a sinner and that their sins separate them from God. That's realizing that you're thirsty. What's the next thing? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. We got to find a resource for the help. We got to find a resource for water. Well, physically, God led the people to a big rock. He told Moses to strike the rock, and water came gushing forth out of the rock. There was their source of water. Sometimes he led them to pools, and he cleansed the pools so that they could drink. Here Jesus is saying, I'm the source that you need. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. I'm the answer to your thirst problem. I'm the answer to your sin problem. If all has sinned and come short of the glory of God, if the wages of your sin is eternal death, separation from God, then come to me. How many people had already come to Jesus? We really don't know. We know that thousands of people had followed Jesus. Just six months earlier, he had fed 5,000 people on a hillside, or 5,000 men plus their families. Could have been 10 to 20,000. We really don't know. We know that probably tens of thousands of people had been at least affected by his ministry. They had heard his teachings. How many had really followed Jesus, not physically, but spiritually? Well, even his 12 apostles were struggling with this, but if you remember, Peter spoke up for the group and said, who else could we follow? Who else has the answers? Who else can we turn to? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were believing, but they were still struggling in their own belief. So, Jesus is simply saying, come to me. I'm the answer. I'm the source of the water that you need. I'm the source of the answer to your sin problem. You need me. He doesn't say, well, you can come to me, or you can come to Muhammad, or you can come to Buddha, or you can come to all these others. He says, no, come to me. He is the only answer. When, some, when Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's that simple. So Jesus says, let them come to me. Then he says, and drink. Y'all heard that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Do you know how many people are this close to salvation? They know that they're a sinner. They know that because of their sins, they should deserve death, eternal death. They should deserve hell. They know that Jesus is the answer. But they won't drink of him. They won't accept him. They won't surrender to his lordship over their lives. They're that close. And that's what Jesus is saying. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the final step. 
That is the receiving of the gift of salvation and eternal life that only Jesus can bring. To drink. Now, physically, if you're thirsty and you see a cup of water there, okay, I'm thirsty, there's the source, what do I do with it? Well, there it is. I'm thirsty. Well, the water's not just going to jump out and pour down your throat, is it? You reach out and you take it as your own. It becomes part of you. It goes into your body and becomes a part of you. That's what Jesus is saying. And drink. Take me. Allow me to be a part of you. I did a whole series as we were separated dealing with the Holy Spirit. If you, I hope that you read them. If not, look back in your emails. You should find them. Talking about the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us, living within us, working in us and through us. That is what Jesus is talking about. He wants to become a part of us. He wants us to partake of him, to drink of him, and receive his gift. Well, as we drink, we obviously have come to him. There's a lot of people in our world that have this sense that there's something more than themselves in this world. They have this sense that there is a God. They have this sense that there may be something greater than themselves out there. And they start doing studies. They search the scriptures. They search other Things to see what might be there. And they realize there is evidence that there is a greater being, God. And if there is a greater being, then his word tells us that he has an answer to my problem. Sin. And the answer is Jesus. But how do I receive Jesus well, if we pick up in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the last first part says, for the wages of sin is death. The second part says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. The free gift, what God wants to give you, you don't earn it, you cannot earn it. It is a free gift. It's something God wants each and every person to receive. Well, what is this gift? Well, Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us in our place for our sins, something nobody can do for themselves. When we die for our sins, we go to hell. That's the penalty of our sins. When Jesus dies for our sins, then our sins are forgiven. And his righteousness covers us so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees the ugly stain of sin. He sees the beautiful righteousness of Christ. That's the gift that God gives us. How do you drink it? How do you accept it as your own? How does it become real to you? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's the drinking.
That is the coming to the point where you say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that because of my sins, I should be eternally separated from you. But I believe that you have given, offered a free gift of eternal life. It only comes through your son, Jesus Christ. He died in my place for my sins. Now, I confess that he is my Lord. I believe that you raised him from the dead to give me salvation from my sins. That's the drinking. That is the accepting of the gift that God has given us. That is what God wants us to receive. Folks, that's one verse. It's the gospel, all in one verse. Can y'all remember this? Remember these words. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you memorize that? You've got a sermon to share with somebody. You've got the gospel in just a handful of words. I just share with you how that portrays throughout the gospel, how it can be used as a lead-in to sharing a plan of salvation. Are you spiritually thirsty? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that because of your sins you deserve eternal separation from God? If you're thirsty, anyone's thirsty, let him come to Christ. You are invited to Jesus. He is the answer to your thirst. He is the answer to your sin problem and my sin problem. Now I can lead you to Jesus, but only you can drink. But only you can accept him personally as Lord and Savior. And here's how to do it. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Romans 10, 13. Whoever, whoever, not a select group, but again, universal, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, shall be saved. That is the gospel. In one simple not even the full verse. The first part of the verse talks about Jesus standing up and crying out. And he simply says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Well, here's the result. Here's the transformation that takes place. He who believes in me, who receives this drink, who takes me in, as the scripture says, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the living water, right? Flowing from us is this river of living water. You know what that means? As a child of God, what should be coming out of us? The message of salvation. The river of living water. That's why our world, our nation is where it is today. It's because Christians have... Cease, they dammed up this river of living water. They hold it into themselves, say, I've got it. I've got all I need. I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to enjoy salvation, but I'm not going to share it with anybody else. That's for me and me only. I'm not going to worry about somebody persecuting me or laughing at me or ridiculing me because I'm a Christian. That's my secret between me and God. Read it again. From our inmost being will flow rivers of living water. That goes out. From within us goes out the rivers of living water. 
That's our challenge, to become God's messengers, to share the gospel. Then he says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, because that is where this comes from. When the Holy Spirit fills us, then the Holy Spirit wants to use us to fulfill his purpose. But he spoke this of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, were to receive. For the Spirit has not was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's something we struggle with. We know that the Holy Spirit was already present in the world at that time. We know that the Holy Spirit had filled the apostles where they could go out and they could heal people and, and do miracles. We know that he was already present. But there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place after Jesus was ascended to heaven. Jesus himself even said later on in John, John chapter 16, verse 7 says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you all remember when Jesus, his last word says, Tarry in Jerusalem. Wait for the coming of the Spirit. And the apostles did. And they met in that upper room, not just as apostles, but many hundreds of disciples, followers met. And the room was shaken. And the Spirit of God fell upon them and filled them to where they could speak languages that they did not know. And they began preaching the gospel to the people around them who were there at that time of Pentecost. And then thousands of people Receive salvation. Thousands came to Christ. That's the power of the Spirit flowing from our innermost being outward into the world. How do you think the United States of America got to where it is today? Totally void of God. Not totally, but basically. It is not a Christian nation Hadn't been for a long time. Because we've damned up the Holy Spirit. We have not allowed Him to flow outward from us as a river of living water. Now, I know what we're all thinking. Well, the people around me, they're all Christians, or they go to church, or they're good people. It's not easy. It's not easy to begin these conversations. Pray. As we have prayed for our nation today, pray, God, how can I be a part of healing this nation? How can I allow your spirit to flow from me as a river of living water with the power to save others? Now, you and I know that I can't save anybody and you can't save anybody either. But we can lead them to the source. We can lead them to Jesus we can encourage them to drink, to receive, to accept, to surrender. That's a personal thing between them and Christ. But I promise you, if you surrender your life to Christ, and allow His Holy Spirit to work in you and through you, He will be giving you the words to say. He will give you the Spirit in which to say them. And then as you share a gospel message, He will 
draw them. Whether or not they drink, it's not anything that we have control over. We can lead them to the source that's between them and God as to whether they drink and receive it. That's always been the case. Jesus himself could not force anybody to accept him. Paul many times preached. Do you remember, Felix? You have almost convinced me. But not quite. If Jesus couldn't force somebody to receive salvation, if Paul, as wonderful of a preacher, man of God, could not get Felix or any of the others to accept, we can't make anybody either. All we can do is share the truth. And Jesus is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, every time we hear a, a gospel message like this, we feel challenged. But we know what we ought to be doing. But we ought to be so surrendered to your spirit every day that we will see the opportunities that you give us. Lord, to minister in your name, to share the gospel through your spirit, to simply invite others to come to hear your gospel being preached, to share one of the messages that have been printed off or emailed. Lord, there's so many ways that we can allow your spirit to work in the hearts and lives of others. But Lord, every time that we say no, our nation becomes further away from you. Lord, we're a sinful nation. We need you to forgive us of our sins. We need salvation. And you're the only source of it. Help us to lead others to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.